This is an ABC podcast. Hey, very good morning to you from David Rutledge and welcome to a special Christmas morning broadcast here on RN. Over the next three hours, the religion and ethics team are going to be bringing you seasonal stories designed to get you in a seasonal frame of mind, from faith and politics among churches and communities in the Pacific region to reflections on the cosmos and our place in it. We'll be looking at spirituality on TikTok and a whole lot more. So stay with us right here on RN. Kicking off this hour, we have a pre-Christmas story, historically speaking, from Ankerim, which is a village in the Judean hills outside Jerusalem. The spring water from Ankerim has sustained the village from ancient times until today, and it's also a spiritual source. According to the Bible, it's here that Mary, the mother of Jesus, visited her cousin Elizabeth when she first learned that she was carrying a baby and where she announced his ministry. Also known as the village of John the Baptist, Enkerim is filled with churches and monasteries and its home to Middle East correspondent Iris Mackler. On the pilgrim trail in Israel and the Palestinian territories, yes, there is such a thing. There are three must-see stops, Bethlehem, Nazareth and Jerusalem. Just outside Jerusalem, in the Judean hills, there's a fourth spot called Enkerim. It's a historic sandstone village, surrounded by olive groves and bushes of fragrant herbs, where each year hundreds of thousands of pilgrims visit churches, monasteries and convents. It's also the village where I live, where bells from various churches mark the passage of time each day, sometimes in competition with each other, and where when you walk out your front door, you meet pilgrims from all over the world. This is my 56th time here. You like it then? Yes, it's my job. <laughs> but I love this, this land. Antonio Tavara is leading a group of Spanish pilgrims from Seville. For me, it's very interesting to take them from Spain to here because they feel good feelings here and they find what they are looking for. Enkerim is known as the home of John the Baptist. According to tradition, he was born here to his ageing parents, the priest Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth. But the pilgrims come because Enkerim is also famous for something else, a spring and a prayer. The Bible tells us that two pregnant women meet at a Judean village identified by its spring water. According to tradition, it's this spring here. The story involves the central miracle or mystery of Christianity, the virgin birth. It centres on the visit by a very young Mary, who just learned she was pregnant, to her cousin Elizabeth. She was also miraculously pregnant, as she was far too old to be carrying a child. The Bible says that when Elizabeth heard Mary's voice, the child in her womb moved. In other words, John the Baptist recognised Jesus. Elizabeth told Mary that she was blessed, and so was the child she would bear. It's a story of two women who had an experience of God in one way or the other. 
Sister Juliana lives at the Notre Dame de Sion convent in Ankerum. I've headed up here to talk to the nuns about this meeting between Mary and Elizabeth, as it's one of the few Bible stories focused solely on women. All of them recognized that they had an experience of God in their life. And when Mary found out that her cousin also had an experience, so she went in order to see her and, and kind of nourish one another in that experience. Another visitor here this Christmas is an Australian nun, Sister Una, originally from Geelong. These two women, one older woman and one younger woman, were able to come together supporting one another and, and I'm sure empowering one another. And that to me is the power of the story. As well as the female nature of the exchange, Sister Una draws a broader lesson about reaching out to everyone we can. We can all have our visitations with one another, into our friendships, into our families. So while it's a pre-Christmas, it's also Christmas, part of Christmas as well, yeah. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. According to the Bible story, Mary had only just learned she was pregnant. Despite the shock, when her cousin Elizabeth praised her, Mary replied with her own song of praise. Those words became a prayer. The Magnificat, as it's known, is recited daily as part of the Catholic Evening Mass. My spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour, for God has looked with favour on his lowly servant. From this day all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. That's Sister Una reading Mary's words as they appear in the book of Luke. They're basically announcing what, what is going to be Jesus' ministry. It's an announcement of what is referred to as the reign of God or the kingdom of God. What God hopes for our world. And the fact that they're pronounced by a woman As Christmas nears, visitors come in larger numbers. Mariana Mikhaila is a pilgrim from Romania who's currently living in London, where she's a bus driver. My husband here is a lorry driver, so we're a family of drivers. She says it's moving to see the actual biblical sites. Moving because uh, you actually get to see the places that Jesus have been, the one that we were hearing in the Bible, and now you actually can see it. Mariana also says the Ain Kerim story, with its focus on two pregnant women, speaks to her personally. It does, and I hope one day I will feel whatever they felt to have a baby. And I do hope that God will give me this chance as well. I will show you the cave where Elisabetta hid from King Herod with her only son, mm. the baby John. Mm. Living here raises a question. Does it matter whether or not the biblical stories are entirely factual, or whether the visitation took place somewhere else and not actually here? For Sister Una, it doesn't. We don't know whether this miracle happened here or whatever, but what makes them holy is that people have come here for centuries and remembered. And, and it's people who have made it and whose faith has been increased, perhaps, or they've been able to express their faith here. And that's what makes them holy. I feel as if I'm in heaven. 
Really? Honestly. Many pilgrims tell me how lucky I am to live here. In fact, they say I'm blessed. And it's hard to disagree because of the history, the serenity, and the joy of chance meetings like these during the holidays and all year round. And that story from Middle East correspondent and Enkerim resident, Iris Mackler. On RN and Radio Australia, this is a special Christmas morning broadcast. And you're with me, David Rutledge. On the 24th of November, faith leaders and parliamentarians gathered at the National Press Club in Canberra for the Australian Catholic University's Parliamentary Interfaith Breakfast. The assembled guests heard speakers from a range of faiths and denominations, including journalist and Wiradjuri man Stan Grant. God is love. It's as simple as that, really. God is love. Friedrich Nietzsche once said that God is dead. And for many people, God may well be dead. But not love. Love is the first lesson I learned in the little mission church that I was raised in. The little white wooden church and the Three Ways Bridge Aboriginal Reserve in Griffith, where we would gather every Sunday morning. My grandmother, my great-grandmother, uncles and aunties and cousins, all of us there to share who we were, to worship together and to hear the lesson of love. Love in a world where we could so easily feel so unloved. My uncle was the pastor of that Aboriginal church, my uncle Wongamah, and I can still see him today, wiping the sweat from his brow with his handkerchief, pounding the pulpit and pointing the finger, and it always seemed to land on me. (laughs) And I'd sit there squirming and pushing up against my mother who'd be pinching my leg at the same time saying, listen, listen. I'd walk out of there with a thumping headache, but I knew, I knew that I was hearing something that was going to stay with me for the rest of my life. And I could feel in that little church, love. That little church was the church of the forsaken. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? When I think of the hymns of that church, I think of the old wooden cross, an emblem of suffering and shame. I can hear the voices in that church. I can hear my aunties and their voices ringing out above all others, escaping through the windows of the church, defying gravity and sending grace and love to the world. Our love was endless in that church, the endless love of those who could feel abandoned, those who could feel forsaken, the love of those worshipping the crucified Jesus on the cross. Simone Weil, the French mystic and writer and philosopher, who once said that she felt the spirit of God entering her. She said that only the forsaken know the truth. 
She said, in the moment that they are forsaken, God leaves them. God abandons them. But God leaves something with them. God leaves love. And she said, it is that love that leads us back to God. I have wrestled with this all my life. I've travelled to places where I've seen the worst things done in the name of God. I know that the people who brought the Bible to this country, the people who preached the word of God in this country were the same people who could be so heartless and so unloving to us. I think of the words of Victor Hugo, who said, for thousands of years, war has pleased the quarrelling peoples of the world and God has wasted his time making the stars and the flowers. Is that true? Is God wasting his time amongst the flowers and the stars? Is it a waste of time to look for beauty in a world where there is so much horror? As a reporter, I have travelled all over the world reporting the great conflicts of our time. And in so many of those places, I see conflicts rooted in the idea of God. If I close my eyes now, I am back there, back in those bombed out marketplaces, walking through the trail of blood where the poet Yeats says, the ceremony of innocence is drowned. I remember standing in a marketplace in Chasada in Pakistan where there'd been a double suicide bombing and 90 people killed. Standing there amidst the wreckage and the stench where the blood was so thick on the ground that it stuck to the soles of my shoes and I could taste it in the back of my mouth even when I went to bed that night. In this scene of absolute horror, by people who believed that they were acting on the word of God as it spoke to them, I also saw mothers, mothers picking the bits of charred flesh out of the pockmarked holes in the walls and putting them into bags because it's all they had left to bury of their children. Mothers showing the face of God, love in the face of horror. I think about my own country and I think about my people and the journey of my people. A people who also have known invasion and war and suffering. I think of the people in that little white wooden church and I think of where they drew that love from, the love to give back to a country that often had shown so little love for them. And I think of the Uluru Statement from the heart. And I know that we are going to a referendum and we will vote yes or no on the question of a voice to parliament. And there are words to be spoken and arguments to be had on all sides of that. And that's what a democracy does. We have those debates. We have those discussions. And people will fall on whatever side of the line they believe speaks mo most truly to them. 
But whether you vote yes or you vote no, can you read the words of the Uluru Statement from the heart and deny to me that you are not hearing words of love? That there is not the hand of God in the words on that page that talk of the torment of powerlessness, but in the face of that powerlessness speak also to hope, the hope that we can walk together to a new future. In the face of that history that can poison us, that history that can pit us against each other, the history that I have seen in the conflicts of the world that I have covered, that in the face of that history they can speak back to that history with love. For a people who have walked the farthest journey, carrying the heaviest load, and they can speak back to this country with words of love, the same words of love that I heard in that little church, the same words of love that I've heard from my friends of all faiths around the world, the same words of love from that church in the south of America, the same acts and words of love I saw in the faces of those mothers whose children had been taken from them in such a senseless act of violence. Martin Luther King Jr. set out, he said, to save the soul of America. He was hailed as an apostle of justice. He said that he was locked in a courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. He went to his death because of an act of hatred and violence. And we can still stand here today and we can speak his words, his words, his words of love still speaking back to a country that finds it so hard to love. And there's a lesson in that for all of us. I'm never, ever far from that little white wooden church on the Three Ways Bridge mission. I'm always that little kid with my uncle's finger landing on him. And when I stand here today, I am here with them. They are here with me. There is nowhere I have been that I have not carried them with me. And in the face of the terrible things that I have seen, I've carried the truth of the church of the forsaken, the truth of the afflicted that God may leave your side, but there is always the trace of love to lead you back to God. I want to leave you with the words of Martin Luther King Jr. who could speak to this far more profoundly than I can. We still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities and at the midnight hours, drag us out to some wayside road and beat us and leave us dead and we will still love you. But be assured, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. To suffer and in the face of that suffering, give back love. That's surely what we are doing in this room today with all of our faiths, all of our cultures, all of our histories coming together in the spirit of love.
in my language, Mandanguru. Thank you. Stan Grant, speaking last month at the Australian Catholic University's Parliamentary Interfaith Breakfast in Canberra. And you're with me, David Rutledge, for a special Christmas morning broadcast here on RN and Radio Australia. Now, you may or may not know that my other job here on Radio National is presenting the Philosopher's Zone, which is RN's weekly half-hour program devoted to all things philosophical. And someone who I recently had on the program is Jamie Parr. He's a lecturer in philosophy at Australian Catholic University in Sydney, and someone who straddles the scholarly boundary between philosophy and religion, which is one of those border zones that I find completely fascinating. Jamie is also a displaced Englishman who feels weird about the fact that in Australia we don't have any snow at Christmas, and I caught up with him this week for some seasonal reflections. Well, firstly, I just feel terribly sorry for everyone in Australia, of course, because you have the wrong weather. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, uh, uh, it was one of the things, funnily enough, that um, I found, uh, and I'm sure this will come as no surprise to many uh, Brits living in Australia, uh, I found the most strange uh, about this uh, rather lovely but also very strange country called Australia. It wasn't until I moved to Australia back at the beginning of 2014 that I realised quite how patterned I am all the way down to the core of me by the weather, by the landscape, by the feel, the smell and so on of the UK um, at all times of the year, but particularly at Christmas, um, which is I've always found in the UK to be a very evocative time of the year. I don't know whether it's just a, a temperamental thing as well, but being an Englishman, I like moaning and being cold and wet and wearing scarves. And um, I still do a lot of moaning. Um, it's one of the things I'm particularly good at. But uh, scarves, not so much. Um, heat stroke does tend to threaten. So actually, I do miss, you know, black uh, silhouetted trees against a, a kind of gunmetal sky and all of these things that when I got to go back to the UK for the first time since 2014, uh, just before the pandemic, it was a wonderful feeling of just being reconnected to something that um, I was kind of crying out for internally. So I think everyone grows up, you know, being um, moulded and shaped by their environment um, and being completely unaware of it until you're a little older and uh, you find yourself out of that rhythm. Uh, so one of the things I've had to do in Australia is to not let go of that rhythm because I don't think I can. It's, uh, you know, layered into me like sedimentary rock. But to adapt to, to a new way of doing it, to the Australian way of um, pretending that this is Christmas time. It's interesting, I think, in Australia, the way that we are still conditioned by that Northern European Christmas mythology. I mean, there's Christmas cards everywhere with snow and, you know, we, we sort of have it all there in our, in our culture. But the mythology really interests me. And I think that even in a secular society like Australia, we still hold fast to a kind of Christmas mythology, which, which is not necessarily the traditional Christian mythology, but still mythic in that sense that we're transported at Christmas into a space outside the everyday. It has its own rituals, has certain kinds of activities that we don't engage in at other times, certain kinds of food, the, the suspension of certain social norms. I wonder if you experience it that way and if you see it as a species of religious behaviour or, or something closely related to religious behaviour, even if one is not religious. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, it's not so much that those of us who are religious um, have it correct. 
uh, about this or that truth that our faiths might uh, convey, but rather that I think it's the other way around, that I think human beings universally have a, have a more or less sharp craving for something like the sacred, however, however that, that is uh, understood and uh, played out, and something like the sacred that sits in intentional and rather gorgeous disjunct with this, the everyday profane and so I think that desire is universal and increasingly under undernourished uh, for so many of us, uh, particularly those of us without a faith. For example, you know, when, when you fall in love with someone, there is a deep, powerful desire that we feel to, for example, to, to sacrifice for this person in some way. And that's a beautiful part of what it is to love and whether one loves a person, whether one loves Jesus or, or whomever it may be, whatever it may be. And these things have not gone away. We have not ceased to be uh, venerating, devotional, loving, sacrificing creatures just because a particular religious framework has, for some of us, fallen into disutility. So I think absolutely that Christmas is it really is a time, it's almost irrelevant whether one is religious or not. It is a time where we can in whatever way we choose, whatever way we see fit, nourish that aspect of us that sometimes we don't even feel enabled, we feel almost embarrassed to be using the language of religion. But I think it's not so much that these religions are capital T true, it's just that the craving in us as, as creatures of devotion and sacrifice and love is capital T true, and religions have just been very good at serving that over the years. Yeah, it makes me wonder, as I often do, if Australia is as secular a society as is, as is often claimed. And I think that, you know, there's a certain self-congratulatory take on secularism that says we Western Europeans, we used to believe in a lot of nonsensical stuff back in the dark ages, but we had the enlightenment and we got science and we've, we've finally grown out of all that uh, irrational superstition or, or the clever ones among us have. What would you say to someone who took that view? Because it is something we hear from the sort of, you know, what, what someone gets called the neo-atheist um, crew. Yeah, there's a lot of um, smug self-congratulatory talk along those lines. First of all, you need to um, work out where you stand in terms of the non-rational or irreason. The position that you just sketched out, well, you know, we've grown up and thrown out all of this irrational nonsense. Well, OK, um, there's clearly a place for the dispelling of irrational uh, experiences and um, the cultivation of reason, for example, in the justice system, for example. But I personally, and I don't think anyone, if they really thought about it, would want to live in a world that was uh, shorn of all irreason. Uh, where would love go, for example? Uh, love is, uh, for very good reason, described by the ancients as um, a kind of divine madness. So firstly, it's unclear to me to what extent we should simply view all irrationality as uh, something negative. And I think clearly, you know, we still crave the fire and transformation of love. We still enjoy the irrational experience, if you like, of um, being taken in by plays and music and, and all other forms of art, um, which at one level, the purely rational level, is make-believe. Um, why, why would we believe it? And also, you know, those of us with uh, children often have a remarkable return to our own memories of childhood when we see our kids playing and getting completely lost in their imaginations and we 
there's a kind of mourning there at the fact that we can't get so completely entranced by a piece of wood or a stone or whatever it might be. And there's a longing there to return to that which we are locked out of as adults. And I think all of that is true and all of that speaks to the fact that, you know, it's, I, I think it's lazy. I think it's too self-congratulatory and it's too um, superficial to simply claim that we are now... Uh, you know, rational grown-ups of culture and so forth. I think our, personally, I think our culture is all the more thin for its moments of over-reliance on reason at the expense of that kind of glorious, dangerous irrationality that um, always lurks underneath anyway. Jamie, you're a scholar of philosophy, and philosophy is sometimes spoken and written about as something that emerged from the chrysalis of theology, but has since become something quite distinct from it. And of course, there are countless different kinds of philosophy. But if we think of the ones that pursue the big metaphysical questions, you know, what's the nature of, of the human? What's the nature of being? What do we mean when we talk about good and evil? Are these questions that verge on the theological for you, even if God is not explicitly in the picture? Personally, I tend to consider those cardinal questions, among which you could also, I think, group, at least in principle, some of the cardinal theological questions. These questions, I think, are, you know, what is the nature of reality? Why are we here? And so forth. They're fundamental because we simply do not know the answers to these questions in any in any way that that seems to be satisfactory uh, or deep enough to really remain unchallenged by any other any other uh, contender, you know, they are they are eternal questions that I think we cannot but ask. Now, of course, there are some people that temperamentally or for any other reason have no interest in these questions, and that's and that's perfectly fair enough. But at the very least, they apply to everyone, just as. In, in principle, questions about the nature of the divine and the relationship between the divine and reality it applies to everyone in reality. So um, when you're down that deep um, in terms of these questions of asking about knowledge and reality and life and death and the nature of the profane and the sacred and how we might understand those two things and all of these, all of these major questions, you are down at a level where it becomes increasingly difficult to draw sensible distinctions, I think, between the so-called philosophical and the so-called theological. And if ultimately philosophy is a quest for some kind of wisdom or knowledge of the world, knowledge of our own experiences and, and so forth, well, in a sense, so is theology. So there's very good reasons why philosophy and theology have been and continue to be, I think, in, in many ways, um, you know, find bedfellows. So who's a philosopher that you would recommend as Christmas reading? I'm laying odds you're going to say Nietzsche, but you might surprise me here. <laughs> no, I, I was tempted to say Nietzsche, actually. Uh, I was tempted to be um, deliciously provocative and recommend Nietzsche's book, The Antichrist. But no, I, I, I shan't do that. However, I do hesitate to suggest Heraclitus. And I hesitate only because Heraclitus is uh, famously, at least among philosophers, famously um, obscure. I think he's amazing. And I recommend Heraclitus precisely for the reasons that we began with, namely to do with rhythm and structure and um, the way in which we relate to both disorder and order in life. So all we have of Heraclitus now are just fragments of a work that has long since been 
lost to history. But here's here's a famous moment from Heraclitus. Uh, we step and do not step into the same rivers. We are and are not. So this is the origin of, you know, you cannot step into the same river twice and so forth. And I think Heraclitus, uh, for those of us brave enough to have a have a look at him, um, is really a really apposite, really suitable thinker for Christmas. You know, there's so much pressure on us nowadays to enjoy Christmas. This is difficult because we often gather in a room with people that we often spend the year avoiding. <laughs> um, but even though that is true for many of us, there is a way that Heraclitus points to um, that allows us, even even under, you know, the most testing of family circumstances, to, to really enjoy or profit from, rather, it's probably the better word, profit from the experience. When we step into the same river, we, we both step into it and we do not step into the same river because although the river appears to be the same, it is different at every moment. And so with each Christmas that rolls past, we get the chance on that one day, on Christmas Day, to, to come back around to the same point that we were at last year on our orbit around the sun. And if we have people around us, if we're lucky enough to have people around us, we can mark time, even if we don't say anything. We can mark time with these people and reflect on what has been and our relationships and draw a sense of deep meaning over time with with these fellow travellers through our lives, our partners, our friends, our family members. And that's deeply valuable because we will miss these people when they're gone. And um, I think if we forget about the gifts, you forget about the food and even the expectation to be to be perky and cheerful and just take the opportunity to use that space of just that one day to take stock of those people in, you know, in all of the chaos of life that, that we are moving through life with. Um, I think that's a really valuable uh, thing that we can actually take away from that. And even if we are spending Christmas on our own, as um, I think many people around the country will be, we can still do that with your own life because uh, the one person that you can guarantee will always be there is yourself, of course. Jamie Parr, lecturer in philosophy at Australian Catholic University in Sydney. And with that, we come to the end of this first hour of our special Christmas morning broadcast on RN and Radio Australia. If you've missed any of the stories this morning or you'd like to hear them again, you can find us via the ABC Listen app, where you'll also find the other two hours of our three-part Christmas special. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company. Thanks for your company.